Welcome to the era where Brad Rencher, CEO of Bamboo HR, asked the question, does putting employees first really lead to better business outcomes? We think we know the answer, but let's dig in and find out. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the next episode of The Era, the podcast where we are really looking at this hypothesis and the idea that all businesses, by focusing first on the employee experience and the engagement with those employees, can drive to um, much better business outcomes than focusing just on business outcomes and not thinking about the employees and the people first. And we're excited today because we have Sandy Gould, who is the Chief People Officer at Callisto Media. And Callisto is a media and tech company that's taking a new and exciting approach to media and publishing. And Sandy also has a long and distinguished history um, at leading media companies, um, really in, in all the people functions. And those include Yahoo, Disney, ABC, um, Real Networks. Um, Linden Labs with the amazing um, online video game um, Second Life. So it's really kind of touched a lot of bases in his career and just has such a unique perspective, especially around talent and recruiting and those conversations and that narratives of how do you unlock the best that is in people. So we are so lucky to have him and excited for the conversation. So Sandy, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. And I'm super excited to... uh be able to connect, learn, and grow together. Thank you. Well, it's one that, as we were talking before, and you've, you've been on record for, um, for over a decade, talking about recruiting and talent acquisition. Um, and, and you think about the, um, you talk about superpowers. Um, and I'd love to just start there. Like, what does that mean um, and why do you feel like it's so important? Thanks for asking that question. So I, I have to go to the origin story because, you know, every great comic book has that origin story for their kids. Yeah, so yeah. um, when I was a kid, my mother got sick in her seventh month of pregnancy. And so I was born sick and actually was sick for the first nine or 10 years of my life. Sounds like a sad story, but it actually leads to an inspiring path, which was uh, there was a moment where doctors were informing me that I was going to be sick all my life, struggle to be healthy, not be able to play sports like the other kids, not have a lot of energy, need a lot of sleep, just have a very challenged future. And my parents said, you know, Sandy, you can do anything. You just have to be willing to work hard enough. I also had the influence of my three siblings who argued all the time. They all had three very different worldviews and they still do by the way today. And, um, then I also had two other factors in play. One was because I couldn't do a lot because I was sick as a kid, I observed people deeply because I really wanted to understand how people were living these amazing lives, which I wanted to live but wasn't sure I was going to be able to. And then the other thing that I had at my disposal was comic books. And so I read a lot of my brother's comic book collection, and I discovered that people had superpowers, and I knew I was going to need to find my own. While I was observing people deeply, I was marveling at how different each person was, how different their view of the world, the way they created their talent, their skills, how they connected to people, how they saw themselves, how different that was, and that their skill, their art came from their difference. So you could say at an early age, I really fell in love with the difference in people because I saw it as a source for what was interesting. So by the time I was 16, I was all pro football, basketball, and track. So I had worked really hard with my brother's help and my sister's to 
to gain the ability and overcome those obstacles and those challenges that were in front of me. And when I did that, when I became All-Star Track, I remember the day I won all the races at a track meet. And I stopped and I thought, I never thought this would actually happen to me. And I remembered my parents saying, you could do anything if you just worked hard enough. And I realized it was true. But I also realized I drew on the things that were unique about me to do it. And so I knew that every human could exceed any limit if they were forced to and they worked hard enough and they drew on their authentic difference. But I also realized in that moment that most people didn't know that and would probably never do it unless they were put in a situation like I was where they were forced to, to survive. And so honestly, that was the moment at 16 years old when I decided, okay, I know what my future holds. My destiny is going to be to go and unleash the superpowers in other people through their authenticity and their difference, show them how that's a beautiful thing, and then help them really unleash those superpowers to go achieve their creative destiny and change the world in the way that they might be meant to do that. And that set me on my course. Uh, I, you know, I pursued education in rabbinical school as well as studying psychoanalysis and psychology, but it became clear to me really fast that in the business world, people's creativity was coming out. And so, you know, I had the combination of my mother's very evangelical spirit of like taking care of people and health and thinking your own independent worldview and spiritual values. And then my father, who was a banker, so he was a very strong salesperson, business person, business leader. And the combination of that education sent me into the business world thinking, okay, I have to help people be human and unique and be a champion for their individuality and then show them how when they collaborate with each other and they create off of their diversity and their difference, they can really change the world together. And I started to build a management system around that as I learned, because when I went into the business world out of rabbinical school, I knew nothing. I'd never worked. I just didn't know anything. I knew what my dad taught me and what my mom taught me, but I learned from people. And that was one of the single best things I did was to start seeing through the eyes of people and hearing what their experiences taught them and then building with them first on their capability and then on other people's capability. And then from there, I started to build management systems around superpowers, what the managers would do to look at the grid of superpowers their people had, what employees would do to develop those superpowers, and then what a company would do to think about a culture that fostered and encouraged authenticity, diversity, and the unleashing of those superpowers. And so that's how, that's how it kind of happened. And um, so thank you for the origin story. That's like, that's like Marvel-esque. I love how, you know, you discovered it slowly over time and after much, uh, and much uh, uh, challenge and, and, uh, and friction in that process. What, as you, as you've been on this journey for the last two decades, what's the biggest challenge for me as an individual or anyone in, in, as an individual to discover their superpower and then to use it effectively and not for it's like like every like every superhero, you got to like, am I going to use it for good or for evil? Right. And how do people discover it and use it in an appropriate way inside of a professional setting? Yeah. So that's a great question. The first thing I have to say is I have to point out that one of the biggest challenges I realized in our whole system of society is that we don't teach people how to discover and unleash their superpowers or that they even have them. If you think about what we all do, we all basically back into the garage, right? We go through life and suddenly something challenges us, like what happened to me, and we respond to the challenge. And then we go, oh, I'm actually good at this. Or maybe I want to be good at this. That doesn't just happen in personal life. It happens at work, right? You and I might be sitting in a meeting and someone's like, oh, there's this new client and they want this thing we've never done before. Who could do that? Oh, well, this person 
Susan, she's great at adapting. She's come up with new concepts before. She understands people. She can, she has empathy. Let's send her to do it. So suddenly Susan is put in a situation, discovers capability. We've deployed it because we needed it, but we weren't sitting there in the old days talking about that before that moment, right? So the second thing I would say, so one, we got to, we got to get people from the time they're 10 and 12 and 13, like what happened to me and say to kids, Hey, you have superpowers, probably many, and you, you're going to build them. So you might as well start thinking about what, which ones do you want to have? Which ones do you think you'll be good at? So that's one. The second thing is we have to encourage people to dig inward. So people have to look into themselves. There's some basic questions like, what am I good at? What do people say I'm good at who know me? What do I like to do? So first your passion and some observations about capability sets you have. And you know this as well as I do. We'll never see ourselves as clearly as other people see us. So we have to learn a lot from people who know us well, like your personal private board of directors, your closest friends and family who can say, you know, you're great at diplomacy or you're really great at solving a problem by breaking it down into its parts. So they're starting to figure out what do you do, what are you good at, and what do you like? And it's got to be the intersection of that because I do think everyone has a mission, at least one if not many, and you have to tap into what your mission is. And so now I'm going to tell you about where I think the mission comes from. I think that everybody growing up has a defining moment before they turn 18. And somewhere in that defining moment, there may be many, not just one, they are dealt a challenge and they rise to that challenge. And part of how they rise to that challenge is by bringing out a capability that they've decided to create because they want to solve the challenge. So for me, as an example, I had a health challenge and I had three arguing siblings. So I became a very fiercely persistent, determined diplomat who could show people each other's perspectives in order to solve a conflict or connect worldviews. And it was practically a response to what was going on around me. So some people might say like, well, you had that ability. So nature, nurture, I actually think I decided to have the ability. Now, definitely, I drew on my father's skills and my mother's, but I have three siblings. We all have different capability sets. So that alone doesn't explain the presence of the capability. I think you have to tap into it and want to tap into it. It has to matter to you. And that's why I think it's the mission in life. So once you start doing that and building on those capabilities, you know, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, now I have to go do a job that's called that. Not true at all. And in fact, we're going to talk about the fact that in the future, I don't think jobs will even matter. You have to have capability sets you're going to use, but the jobs can be many different millions of jobs. They all draw on many capabilities. And so you just want to make sure you have a job that is giving you an outlet for your capability and allowing you to drive success and creativity through that capability. Once you know that, and I'll give the example of when I left rabbinical school and got into the, the business world, which I knew nothing about besides what my dad had taught me, I remember people saying, what are you going to do? And I said, it doesn't really matter as long as I can use people skills and you know analysis and meaning because those things matter to me and I want to help people. And so they're like, well, do you want to be like a salesperson or do you want to be a... Uh, do you want to be a diplomat, like work in government, do an evangelist, fundraiser, a social worker? I said, sure. Those all sound great. But again, I just want to be able to use the capabilities and I want to have the experiences I want to have. So when you go into the business world, when you start to work for a company, you have to think about what are the capabilities I have? What's my mission? And how can I align those capabilities and that mission to a company's? And so I might argue that I could go into work for any company doing anything. And I kind of will argue that I have. I've worked for companies that do a wide range of things, including things that never existed before. 
as long as I was able to understand that the company cared about people, viewed people as its primary asset and the road to its growth, creativity, and success, then that was a place for me because I believed that's what people were at a company and I was going to help the company realize that. And so when people say to me like, oh, and then there's one more really big thing and I credit my parents with this. This was pure luck and teaching by my parents because I did not premeditate this at a young age. But when I got into my first job as a headhunter, I worked at a comic book store, then I became a headhunter recruiter at an agency. I just decided that I had the right to make the job what I wanted it to be. So my first day, they told me the job is basically like sort of car sales and sort of like, you know, uh, prepping people for interviews. And I remember the person who was teaching me that. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And she said, what? And I said, yeah, that's not the job I'm going to do. She goes, well, you kind of have to. I'm like, no, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a consultant, a management consultant to the companies based on what I know about psychology and business, which was nothing, by the way. And I'm going to be, um, I'm going to be a coach to people and just help them realize their potential, you know, their diversity, their difference, the power within them. I said, that's what I'm going to do. And I said, well, but you have to sell. You have to make cold calls. You have to make money. You know, you're part of an agency. You're working on commission. I said, I think if I do it right, it'll work out. And so, and I even approached, you know, in the agency world, there's a big deal about pricing, about, you know, getting all the money you can. And when I started working with people in companies, I was like, well, whatever you think is fair. I didn't, I didn't make a big deal about the fee has to be this or that. I was like, no, if it's valuable, you'll pay for the value. We'll keep working together. So I made the whole thing relationship-based because I'm a relationship-based guy. I had a boss who said to me one time, Sandy, everything about you is personal, so you should only ever do things that are personal. And he was exactly right. His name is Steve, and he was my boss at Disney, and he's brilliant. And he was my mentor, and he was exactly right. And so that became a real powerful guiding principle for me, always work in a personal environment. But that kind of taught me that's the orientation I have to take, and those are the superpowers I have to draw on. And so you have to, I was so lucky that I decided I had the right to design my own job. And so one of my pieces of advice for everybody ever, always design your own job, whether you're CEO or receptionist or an engineer, always design your own job. And you may think, and people may tell you, well, no, you have to do the job description. Well, yeah, you have to do the responsibilities of the job, but how you do them is not only going to give you an opportunity, it will give the company an opportunity. And if you and I think for a second about every employee we've ever talked to who was a high performer, one common attribute was they always did more than the job description. They always did different than the job description. So we know there's a formula in there for, you know, creating greater value. Does that make sense? I'd love, I'd, I mean, that's that there's so many good nuggets in there. You want to go tear apart, but I love the superpower getting to core capabilities. Like what are the capabilities that you can unleash inside an organization that makes you unique and different and that um, that will add to and enhance what the mission of that organization is? I love that thought. And then you get into what's my personal mission. And then that last kind of unlock is how do you design your how, how you execute on that. You don't need to do it by rote memorization of how the organization's been done it done before. We know what that outcome will be. Um, you know, as you look to 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 um, have an impact, because I just fundamentally believe everyone wants to have an impact when they come in. No one shows up and is like, you know what? I really, I just, I really don't want to make a difference. It's how do I how do I um, design the job? I love a book. There's a book by two Stanford professors that talks about designing your life. 
And it, it's saying use product, almost uh, product design principles, design principles to design the things that you want in your life. And I think about, could you actually apply the same characteristics to your how and, and how you choose to do your role? I love that you just said that because that's what I tell people when they're thinking about their career at any stage. I say, treat it like you are managing a product and the product is you. And just think about where, where this product has gone so far and where it could go next and what else you want to draw out of it in terms of leverage value. I think that's a really good insight. The, so um, as you as you kind of been on this journey with superpowers, another thing that you're known for out there are shoes. Like, how, like what's the connection on Sandy with superpowers and shoes? And you got to show the audience, you showed me before, let's see the sneakers you're wearing today and let's talk about it. So first I'll show you the sneaker I'm wearing today, <laughs> which is the Psycho Bear, Jeremy Scott's Adidas Psycho Bears. And there's a whole line of bears that he did. Um, so... So because I viewed myself early on as a champion of individuality, right? Like I loved how each person was unique and what was amazing about their difference and their diversity and how their superpowers came from that. And, you know, in life we start, we're born broken. So we're all ashamed of our difference. We want to assimilate, but then eventually our difference is where our powers are coming from and we learn to celebrate it. So um, I'm married to an amazing man who I've been married to for 30 years, Daniel. And Daniel and I, by the way, are completely different. We are so opposite which we love about each other. And so we both love difference. One day, so I ran track growing up, as I mentioned. And when I got to college, I stopped running track. So I stopped wearing sneakers. I didn't wear sneakers for like 10, 15 years. And one day my husband, Daniel came home and he said, I got you something today. And I said, what's that? And he pulled out this pair of sneakers called the Riveras. And they're just all blue high tops, really beautiful painted blue high tops. And I looked and was like, wow, I've never seen anything like that. It's just such a cool, unique pair of sneakers. I said, where'd you get it? And he said, oh, this sneaker store called Goods on Capitol Hill in Seattle. So the next day I went to that store and I walked in and the whole store was filled with 200 pairs of sneakers, all different. And immediately just the, the worldview of individuality was so profound to me. It was like, wow, every person could have a different pair of sneakers and it would express their individuality in such a cool artistic way that I fell in love and I've just been collecting sneakers ever since. And the funny thing is, it was such a minor thing to me because I think one of the greatest things you can do in life is express your difference and it's really fun to be ourselves and express ourselves. But I remember years, so I started wearing sneakers and I only wear sneakers ever since then. So it's been, you know, like 20, 30 years. So when I worked at Disney, which was a great experience, one day I was walking across the lot in Burbank to a meeting in the executive building. And I was wearing a pair of all blue patent leather sneakers. I love patent leather. And they're called the Olympic pack. There's like six different colors, blue, yellow, white, green, red. And um, I was with two coworkers and we were talking about, they're like, Sandy, everyone, you know, makes fun of you because you wear a suit like people at Disney do, but you wear sneakers. So they like knew who I was on the lot. And I said, you know, Goofy's walking around. Mickey Mouse is walking around. Why are people talking about my sneakers? Like that doesn't, like that idea. Right as I said that, Bob Iger and Ann Sweeney walked by. So Ann was the head of ABC television, you know, most powerful woman in Hollywood and TV. And of course, Bob Iger is Bob Iger. And they walked by and we're like, hey. And they're like, hey, very nice. And as we're passing them, Ann says, she leans over and she goes, I love the sneakers. And then, you know, Bob laughed. It's like, me too. And they walked by and the employees were just like, wow, that's amazing. And I was like, but see, that's the thing. They just appreciate that someone's just doing something unique. And shouldn't we all be doing that? 
And so that's when I started to realize what I hadn't realized before, which is when, when you as a human or a leader express your authenticity and your difference and you're comfortable with it, it encourages other people to feel like they can do the same. And it turns out it's a really important part of leadership that I didn't realize before that. Um, and so that's why I love sneakers and the sneaker culture. And I mean, I, I have friends at all the sneaker stores around me eight, ranging in ages from 17 to 75. And where else do you get that, right? Just like so many different cultures, so many different communities. And, and we're, we always connect over, you know, the psycho bears or a different sneaker or where the new thing is. But I really learned, I had a lot of different employees at different times in my career come up to me. You know, one day I was at a, we were doing a diversity meeting, Tim Armstrong, myself, Swimming Allison, who ran diversity at AOL. And um, we were, I think, with the mayor of San Jose, and we did this great diversity meeting. And afterwards, one of our engineering leaders, Allison, came up to me, another Allison, and she said, I was wearing all gold. So I was in all gold. And she said, can I just thank you? And I thought she was going to say, like, this is a great diversity meeting, which, you know, she did say that. But she goes, can I just thank you for wearing what you wear every day? And Tim and I and Allison all laughed. And I said, like, sure, but, like, why, you know, thanks, but why is that such a big deal? And she goes, because you just, you always show up as you, which just tells us we can always show up as us. And so it really started, the pattern started to click for me, the validating of people and their voices and their worldview and their difference. That's the unlock. Right. That's the big unlock of people's capability in the company. And I think, you know, what's the role of leaders in doing that across the organization? And I think about the audience of the podcast and so many people, whether you have two employees or 2000 employees, how do you how do you channel, you know, each one of those employees to find that superpower and then have permission to bring that to their role every day? It's kind of a. um it's such a simple thing, but it's not obvious, right? It's, it wasn't obvious to me. And that's one of my guiding principles, by the way. One of my guiding principles for life and HR, both, is and talent, is co-design everything with people around you, your friends, your family, your partner. And at work, HR should be building everything about the culture with every employee in the company. If it's diversity programs, co-design it with the diverse communities. If it's talent development, co-design it with people who are great talent in the company. Whatever it is, it could be a benefit policy. Co-design with employees who care about benefits. Like if you're doing something yourself, you're missing out on the collaborative value that transforms the world and a company. So to me, co-design is one of the golden words that has just changed everything. And I, it's my approach on learning, thinking, understanding the world. Um, you know, one, I know one of your questions was about what, what, what are the things I love about recruiting? One of the greatest things is you're engaging the intersection of humanity and you're seeing through their collective eyes. And that's profound, like just multiplied learning. You know what I mean? Um, so those are things that I think are, are just interesting about, about superpowers. And that's how sneakers got intersected. Yeah, I, I, I love it. And I've got a I've got a 17 year old that maybe you may bump into him in one of the stores. He's he saved he did a summer job and bought himself an, an airbrush kit. So he's customizing sneakers and doing a whole bunch of stuff. And he's got big dreams and hopes for where, where the sneaker industry is going to take him. And you know what? It's I got to tell you, I think I read a report a few weeks ago that the secondary sneaker market is the same size as the primary. It's six billion dollars each market. I mean. 
That's mind blowing. It's well, and you touched on it right there, Sandy, a little bit of taking these, you talked about these management principles and this management system that you've learned and then it's, it's evolved. Help us get into, yeah, like where you started, take us back to the beginning and in recruiting and, um, and what do you, I mean, what are the, what are the challenges you think people who are out trying to find the right talent for their organization today? Um, like what, what, where, where do you feel like our, our industry is most challenged in our approach and what changes and, you know, what perspective, what perspective should we change? So when I started, it was about fill a job, get somebody who has the skill, which you can tell by their experience and the right passion and orientation to do the job. And then from there, you build teams, you build structure, you build support, you align direction, strategy, and tactics. And it's funny to think back on that and think that's what we were doing, right? Because people aren't a job and skills are not static, right? And experience is one factor, but it's not a proxy for certainty. Experience does not determine and confirm success. And people have skills that they've gleaned through experience. People have skills that they haven't used in experience yet. They have potential. They have adaptability and learning, which to me are actually more important than experience, even though experience is super important. So I think some of the challenge is we tend to, it's what you talk about and it's what your firm is about too. There's a focus on business and task first. And we would like to define that through as much simplicity and certainty as possible, which is noble, but humans are complex. They are not simple. And companies are communities of humans. So you have to think not just, can this person do this job? You have to think about how will they adapt? Will they like it? Where could they grow? What more could they contribute? What more opportunity do we have? And how do we line that up? So that actually, if you line it up correctly, their growth leads to the company's growth. That's a way more complex formula than when they do the job, right? For so long, industries have tried to really contain people in a job and say, just do this, this is what we're doing. In fact, the number one issue managers have whenever HR folks say to managers, let's develop our people, let's have a marketplace, let's grow people, let's career develop. The very first response you get from managers is like, I don't want them to leave the job. What if I don't have another job for them? Like in every company I ever went to, the people would always say like, well, we don't know if we can promote them, when we can promote them. Will they get the promotion? Will they be successful? What other jobs could we give them? What if we don't have that? And the truth is you don't have to know any of those things. You just have to focus on developing people to their passion and their capability and then let reality and opportunity finish the story, right? And put it in the hands of the employee to drive their own development, but make sure we are supporting them. I'm, I'm always a fan of they 51% are the CEO and owner of their career. We are 49% their partner, right? If we do this right, if we're smart, we're going to grow our people because that will grow our business, right? If you think about it, the only organic part of your company or your business is your people. Is the people, and that's where the org that organic growth comes from. I love... A couple of thoughts as you know, as you're kind of going, as you're kind of going back and forth, Sandy, to where 
I do think um, I, I look across, you know, we're in the technology field, you're in the media and tech field. I look at the organizations that have done so well. I think they, you know, I think lazy recruiting is like, oh, go hire people who've worked at these companies. And here's the profile. And the ones that I think have done so well is they get to what you started with. They somehow can find those capabilities or superpowers, and they're willing to bet on those, even if the resume says they have no business doing this role. That's right. Exactly right. So I think what's behind that is two things. One, I think when you invest in people, you get more out of them than just what their linear experience could give you. And we never used to calculate that. I think the second thing is, you know, I was asked uh, a year or two ago by somebody at an event that I was speaking at, someone said to me, what is the number one thing a recruiter should look for in a candidate? And I said, uh, adaptability, their ability to transform. Because if you, if you interview a candidate from company A and you're hiring them into company B and you say, well, they did it before at company A, so they'll be successful at company B, we all know that may not be true. But if they adapted to changing circumstances and difficulties and challenges and ambiguity at company A, the odds are very high they have that transformer capability and they'll use that again and again in different environments. And they'll persevere, right? Because they're comfortable with that and it's a superpower they're building. So I think that's key. And then I think investment and will are a big deal. Like when, when I think when we were growing up, it was about hard skills and soft skills were nice to have. Just the way that working out was like a bonus, but not something people generally did. Same with mental health and therapy. Oh, that's like a nice thing to do if you have to, but not really a primary skill for life. Now the world has flipped and we realize that those are the primary skills for life, right? And so how many times will you, know, you or I hear a manager say, well, this candidate's a little stronger in experience than this candidate, but I want this lighter candidate more, lighter in experience, because they have more passion for it. And so I think they'll end up being a better teammate. They'll end up working harder. They'll end up persevering through tough times more. The other person might be stronger, but they'll leave when the going gets tough. Whereas the other person will be more hardcore. And so those, those elements in a person, what drives them, right? Their passion, their sense of mission, and their ability to collaborate. Those have now become what I call activator factors. They play a much bigger role on the impact Sandy, what what do you what do you make of this this conversation that's been happening over the last month or so after the 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 TikToks hit on quiet quitting? So it is very very easy. So as humans, we are dualities. Remember, I was saying before we're born broken, so we have a lot of dualities. We're physical and spiritual. We're individual and collective. We want to be unique and different, and we also want to assimilate. And we want to do it ourselves, and we want help. We want to be active. We want to be passive. So one of the challenges of this whole duality is control. We would like to believe we have control and we would like to have control. And therefore, we're going to assert control. Turns out you and I know we have control over nothing. In fact, last three worlds in the world we live in has taken time to prove to us we have no control of what's going on in the world around us more than ever before. And we've all had to deal with that and persevere in total ambiguity and uncertainty. So because of that, I do believe management gets distracted by the illusion that we need to tell people how many sick days they have or they'll take advantage of it. We need to tell them 
when to be in the office and that they have to go to the office or they won't do work. We need to control, manage, and, and watch people to make sure they get their stuff done. I actually believe the opposite. I believe you should spend your time doing the thing you want as an outcome. If you want people to be successful, then inspire them to be successful. Don't try and legislate them into doing their job. Because the bottom line is, you know, I remember going to one company to work and the CEO said to me, don't you think we need to limit people's sick days or they'll take advantage? And I said, no, they're either a great employee and I don't care how often they're sick or they're not a great employee. And then we're going to say goodbye to them. And it won't be because they're taking five sick days versus four. So manage the essence. Don't get distracted by the accident because you're afraid of being taken advantage of or you want control. So when I read the TikTok thing, when I saw the TikTok thing, I thought this is just another classic example. Focus on what matters. Return to office is the same thing. We used to have one norm in the world. You go to a building with other people to get stuff done. Now we have two norms. If you really want to get a lot of stuff done, you stay home. And then when you need to innovate and collaborate, you go into an office, assuming it's safe, right? And I think the future is those two norms. But as I watch CEOs react and say, like, I demand people come back, and we all see how that's going for Apple, not well. It's co-design. You have to listen to the employees. And, and the thing I said to executives when they said to me, but Sandy, they won't do all these things. My response has been, then give them reasons to want to be in the office. Give them moments that matter. Give them currency. Make it valuable. Then they'll do it because they want to. And when they want to do it, you're going to have a more successful business and outcome than if you're trying to force people to do something that they don't want to do because we're willful beings. Will is everything, right? So that to me was sort of my reaction about TikTok. I'm like, we, we, we got to focus on what matters. We cannot manage people because we're trying to make them do a good job. I love the don't try to legislate them to, uh, you know, success. Yes. Don't legislate create desire, create need. It would be like if you and I said, Hey, let's do a TV show and we'll make it really successful because we'll force people to watch it. <laughs> like, no, it'll be successful because everybody wants to watch it. Right. And so that's, that's, we've got to activate will and we have to inspire. I mean, and that's another skill that I think is important. So I, I, you know, I do, and you, you came back to that co-design principle and that's just rattling around in my head with all these things, because yes, the last, the last two to three years have been as complex in the people business than any time ever. And, um, and I think sometimes in our haste to get it right, we're skipping over that opportunity to collaborate and co-design. Yeah. And, and something else that you mentioned in, you know, the, the pre-read that you sent to me, inclusion. Like everybody wants to be included intrinsically, not just diverse communities. Everybody does. But for diverse communities, it's more important than ever because it's life and death, right? It's livelihood. And so when you co-design with people, you're saying, hey, I want to do something. I want you to do it with me. So I have validated you. I've demonstrated value. I'm allowing you to shape it. And what were you and I just talking about before? We're talking about people will do something when they want to. Well, people don't want to do anything more than stuff they created. American Idol. We created Kelly Clarkson. That's one of the reasons we love Kelly Clarkson. We all voted for her. That's different than somebody else who we love, but we had nothing to do with their career, right? So we love pride of ownership. And so that's sort of my philosophy about a company, which is have everybody, everybody owns it, everybody leads. You know, whenever I get in front of a company and people start asking me about culture, I always say culture is owned by every single person, not the CEO, not the head of HR. It's every person. 
And it, let's, yeah, let's actually get, you just talked about inclusion. And I noticed, at, you know, at, at Collective Media, one of the values is diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, and, you know, and, and DEI gets, you know, kind of accurate, you know, we put that into an acronym and maybe even forget that those are actually, those are, each one of those words means something different. And now we're adding belonging. What's behind the, what's behind the B? Why are we adding the B there? So I'm going to tell you two things in the answer. So three things in the answer. Well, I believe we're all born broken and we will spend our lives trying to fix it by creating. And that's the beauty of life, right? We'll connect to other people. We'll create, we'll discover our own inner beauty and each other's and together we'll shape a world. And that's kind of the redemption. So I told you that we have that dualistic struggle between being unique and assimilating the very scariest thing a human being will ever do is to be themselves. I'm just telling you right now, it's the one answer. It is the scariest thing a person will do. Scarier than skydiving, scarier than anything else. And at work and in society, there's a very powerful norm that drives assimilation. So lots of people in life can decide not to take the risk to be themselves, to say a point of view that's controversial, to challenge the norm or the mainstream. But diverse communities do not have that option. They've had to fight for survival. They've had to assert their authentic identity for the various different reasons of discrimination that diverse communities unfairly have had to deal with. And therefore they have wielded a power, which is to be the lone person like themselves in a room, to speak up when they were different from everybody else to fight to be present and for their rights when they were being denied those rights. And so when you think about the different aspects of and this is why I think diversity is not only so important, it's the unlock to everything. First of all, imagine if we were all exactly the same in the world. No one would really care about living because it would be super boring. We all already know everything we're going to say. We all have the same sneakers. We all say the same thing. Nothing's different, right? So difference, I think, is the reason behind life, honestly. And... And at business, where we're trying to innovate and bring new things to a customer every day, different thinking is the most important thing we will do to drive that outcome, to discover, to create that way. So what are the ways in which you do that? So there's diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging. And all of these are about the ways in which we have to balance the discrepancy, the ways in which we haven't brought people who are different because that threatens people, right? It threatens people about, oh, this diverse person is, has the bravery to be who they are and to be different and stand for that. And I don't know if I do. So that scares people down. And so celebrating that diversity as a superpower, because it is. And by the way, there are two mottos we created that I really believe in. One is difference plus imagination equals innovation. So simply put, if you and I were in a room of a thousand people and we told everybody to close their eyes and think about the last time they solved a problem, and then we said, what do you all have in common? What did you all do that was the same? The answer is they all thought differently to solve the problem. So diverse cultures have more of that, even because of the situation they've been in and because of their heritage and history that they bring to us. And we don't have enough of that, so we need more, right? So... Celebrating diversity as a currency, what, what we say at Callisto is it's the engine behind everything we do. 
drives all the creativity we do. It unlocks all the capability of our people to improve the lives of billions of people. And so that seeing it as the superpower it is and celebrating it is, is key. So that's one. And you have to show that. You have to reward it. You have to value it. And I'll talk in a second about the six things you do in a culture to make the culture extant. But you have to definitely do that for diversity. So inclusion is about the idea that we just talked about with co-design. It's I'm going to create something and I wouldn't want to create it without you involved, which just shows that I value you, right? And that you matter. And I see your substance as having value the way mine does. And if I'm trying to create something good, I would want your opinion, your worldview, your creativity involved in it. So I think that's crucial, especially at work, what we're doing. Now, a lot of people ask, what is belonging that isn't already included in inclusion? Well, I think the simplest answer in the world is I invite you to a party and there's 50 friends at the party. And I say, wow, I'm so glad you're here. But then I dance with other people. I never dance with you. That's the difference between inclusion and belonging. You were included in the party. You're here. You matter, but you don't matter a lot, right? And you see the difference. And maybe it's performative, by the way. Maybe I just invited you because I want a lot of people at my party, or I want to be like the nice person who invited everyone to his party, right? Or I was supposed to do it. But if I actually say like, oh, come dance with us, this is our favorite song, or what music should we play? And you and me and two other friends decide, then you and everyone knows that the measure of inclusion is belonging. It's you're essential to what we do and how we do it in a way where we wouldn't do it without you. Right. We wouldn't think of doing that without you involved. And, you know, when you have any relationship, a friendship, a work relationship, a personal relationship, and someone makes a decision and, you, and then, you know, the partner says, like, I can't believe you made the decision without talking to me. That's what they mean. Like, am I a part of this or not? Do I matter the same or not? So belonging has become so important because, as you and I know, there's a lot of performative diversity going on. A lot of people saying the right thing, but not doing the right thing. And I do want to say that one of the most profound, not one of them, the most profound part of my career was being at Yahoo after we sold the company to Verizon, after the, the tragic murder of George Floyd, was realizing we had to launch a racial justice initiative. And because we'd all seen diversity for many years not succeed, the CEO said to myself and my head of diversity who worked for me and we were close and we were partners, the CEO said to both of us, how are we going to do this in a way where it actually works? Because diversity is really stuck and we can't do that here. It's a matter of life and death. It's so important. The world is like on its knees because of this issue. And I looked at Ram, who was my partner, and he looked at me and we said, we don't know, but we're going to bring the employees into it from the black community and other diverse communities. And we're going to co-design it together and we're going to figure it out. And that's what we did. And we, we didn't obviously solve the world's diversity problems, but we got a good start on it. And we did some things that worked in a way they never had before because we pushed harder. We thought about action. We made sure it wasn't just ideas. Everyone was involved. We embedded it in everything we did. But above that and all the good results we got, it was because we had 30 people meeting every week from all over the world working on this. And they were from every group of employees in the company. So black, Latin, Hispanic, Latinx and Hispanic uh, Asian Pacific Islander, you name it. We had all the different communities and we built it together. And we were honest about it. We were honest about what was working, what wasn't, about how much people cared, where they needed to care more. 
and we tackled hard problems and we talked about those hard problems publicly. And so, but the biggest thing was it was co-design and I yeah, would back to the co-design. You're yeah. back to that. Yeah. I, and I was so important. So important. And I would tell you right now, cause I'm friends with a lot of people who are in that group. They would tell you they weren't just included. They belonged because they didn't just suggest ideas and come to a meeting. The ideas were actually transacted. Like one night we're having a meeting and one of the employees, brilliant guy named Marquis said to me, we're not doing enough. He's like, we're doing a bunch of these good things, but it's not enough. This company has a lot of power. We can do more. People are dying. We have to do more. And I said, you're right. So let's talk about what would that be? What are like four or five bold, bolder actions we could take? And we started working on it. And then we presented it to the CEO and we said, we've got to do this. And then we implemented a few of them. That was belonging. That was the difference between inclusion of like, yeah, I hear you. And belonging, which was like, not only do I hear you, but your observation is now our agenda. It's now going to shape what happens. Great example. And, you know, with a, the question was, okay, what's belonging's role in diversity, equity, and inclusion? And I think you gave some examples for everybody who's listening to say, okay, am I including or am I helping them to belong? So just, just a masterclass in how to think through that. Thank you for that. Yeah. And the one thing I'll add, thank you for saying that. The one thing I'll add is, so equity. There's got to be opportunity to get value and, and wealth and support in life the way everyone else has gotten in society. So we've got to make sure that translates. But it's also true, going back to the examples I just gave, it's also true that if, if diversity is really embedded in your core values, you're going to say it, you're going to do it, you're going to reward it which is the single biggest proof a company cares about something if they pay for it. You're going to promote against it and hire and fire to it, and you will then build process that sustains it. So like every company likes to make money, right? They like to make money. It's the number one priority. We realized halfway through our racial justice initiative that diversity had to be the same thing. It had to be treated the way making money was treated. It had to be looked at as this is how we're going to do everything we do that creates value. And therefore, it won't fade off the agenda when we get too busy or if we lose money or if we don't have time or a million excuses. It will always be, no, this is a better way to do things. We need to deploy this to figure out how to do things in a better way, in an inclusive and an equitable and a belonging way, in a diverse way. And the examples are everywhere. We had an employee who um, was diverse and a vet, and he came into one of our data security teams. And on his third day, he tested a way to change an algorithm on the website based on something he'd done in the Navy. And we made a million dollars off that change that day. Diversity. It's just a perfect, simple example. He did something because of his background and because he was comfortable as a person trying something that, didn't, that people didn't normally do in that setting, right? Getting back to the getting back to the how, yeah, but you know, the, to have the permission to to do that. Well, and Sandy, and I know we're getting a little short on time, but we've we've started with superpowers. We talked about sneakers. We got we touched on recruiting and talent management. I mean, we just talked about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. You said something earlier in the in our conversation that that struck me. I want to come back to it. You said jobs are going away. Can we just finish up on like, what do you mean by that? 
I think we have overplayed the job idea for too long. So job descriptions aren't going away. Everyone should know exactly what they're supposed to do, right? Like, and by the way, your job isn't exactly what your job description says, but you should at least have a basis for, you know, if I'm here to build a house or build some code or build a product or hire some people, I should know exactly what's entailed. That said, we know we all do more than that. We know we do more on a daily basis than that. We also know a person isn't a job. So you have to think holistically. And the way I like to approach it, and this is the way I believe it will be approached in the future, and I think it's happening already, is companies should look at talent and say, what are your superpowers? What do you love? Where do you want it to lead? Here is what we're creating. Here's what we need. And now let's start to create connective lines between those two things and formulate together, co-design together, what your job will be. So in the last few companies I've been at, we've done that at the executive level, and we're now starting at Clista to do it beyond the executive level. It is such a better process. It makes so much more sense. It's way more engaging and interesting. And by the way, when you do it that way, it's super hard for other companies to compete with you because they don't do that, right? And so I remember when I was at Yahoo, and you know, our first year we were competing really hardcore with Google and Facebook and the fan companies. And... We, our strategy was threefold. We're going to be personal in the interview process, give people a career-making opportunity, and build the job with them. And so one of the – I would meet the new hires every week. So would Marissa. That's something I got from her, which was brilliant. And so we both met everybody we hired, and we hired a lot of people. And I would always ask them, why would you join us? And one of the very common answers was, well, first of all, you all asked me what I wanted to do. Like in all these other companies, they didn't even ask. They just started challenging us with questions and seeing if we could do the job. And then you talked to us about what we could grow into. You even introduced us to people that you know were on teams we might grow into later. And that just was a different level for them. It put us in such a competitive you know, advantage situation. But it also allowed us to create a career marketplace where we were building a way for employees to say, I'm going to grow my future at this company. And then they knew we were invested in them personally. And when someone knows that, it just puts you way ahead of a transaction. That makes sense? That makes tons of sense. And I love the idea, again, coming back to this principle of co-creation that you kind of do so well taught today and that I've learned from. Well, Sandy, we're gonna, let's wrap here. Thank you so much for joining the, this episode of The Era. For those that are listening, please um, tune in um, next time as we continue this dialogue around employee experience and what the unlock, as Sandy's helped us see today, unlocking their diversity, their differences, and their superpowers to create lasting value for our people and for our businesses. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next time. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Be well. Looking for ways to combat the great resignation and keep your very best people? Check out the 2022 Guide to Retention. You'll discover just how hard it is for organizations to retain employees in 2022, why people leave and learn what you can do to boost retention and minimize turnover in your organization. Find this guide and many more helpful resources at bamboohr.com resources and discover more ways you can do great work. That's bamboohr.com forward slash resources. You've been listening to The Era. Stay connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. Your feedback helps us make content that's valuable to you and your work. Thanks for listening. Until next time.